You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 14th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, after skipping them last year, President Putin has held his annual press conference and radio phone-in. For such a country as Russia, the very existence of our country without sovereignty is impossible. We'll assess what he said and some seemingly surprising messages from the public which got through to him. Then to South America, where a summit's being held between Venezuela and Guyana's presidents over a disputed oil-rich region. ¡Que viva el mapa completo de Venezuela! Plus, a big day for Ukraine in Brussels. We have your back. We were with you then. We are with you now. We will be with you for as long as it takes. European Parliament President Roberta Metsola in February of this year. But will the EU back Ukraine to become a member now? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. President Putin has been holding his end-of-year press conference this morning, combining it with his national phone-in for the first time. Last year, Putin skipped both due to his disastrous illegal invasion of Ukraine. But with the war seemingly in a stalemate and the impact of Western sanctions not as dire on the Russian economy as expected, Putin, who's entering the early election as much as it is one now, campaign trail, has been talking up the national situation. Mark Galliotti is a political analyst and author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. I spoke to him earlier. Mark, thank you for joining us. What's President Putin been saying this morning? Oh, dear heavens. Um, as you'd imagine, a lot, given that it's been running for hours. It's been an astonishingly tedious uh, conference, press conference, even by these standards. Essentially, I mean, if one tries to distill from all the various bits and pieces, discussions about the price of eggs and such like, he's really trying to do two things. One is demonstrate that he really does care about the concerns of the little people, even though he tends to do that without much empathy. And secondly, to really present himself as the the war leader in a time of crisis you know we, we've had a lot of videos with um people in camouflage and him expressing his his uh, you know, appreciation of everything they've done but what's really striking though is actually that this time compared with most of the previous ones there doesn't really seem to be any kind of core theme and he skipped it last year for obvious reasons how badly the invasion of ukraine was going um Does he seem like he's feeling confident at all? He's got an election coming up. It's the interesting kind of contrast between words and body language. Um, In words, he says that, yes, it's great. The the Ukrainians, you know, that the aid they're getting from the West is beginning to dry up. That uh, position all along the front line is going quite well for Russia and, and such like. He claims against all the evidence that the Ukrainians are suffering more casualties than the Russians. But on the other hand, again, he he doesn't come across as either looking incredibly confident on the war, but nor does he look as if he's at all willing to give any kind of acknowledgement to the fact that there is a large portion of the country who are hoping for some kind of sign that the war will end or end sooner. 
and it's you know it's almost like he's treating the war as if it's the weather something that just one has to endure rather than something that one can do anything about and you've mentioned their domestic issues, the not finding any eggs in the shops in Russia. The calls that are coming through, they're presumably being screened. But are they raising those kind of issues, the sort of what we call here the cost of living crisis, the, the lack of supplies in stores? Well, this is an interesting thing. Look, apparently almost two million different messages were sent in in advance. So clearly, exactly, it's all very heavily curated. But what we have seen also, we have on the screen behind uh, a constant stream of SMS text messages coming in. And some of them are actually really quite critical. There's ones pretty much sort of always along the lines of, you know, why does your reality differ so much from ours or in one case can i live in the in the russia that is on channel one tv now whether that's just an oversight or whether that's actually thrown in just to try and make this look that much more real of an event it's hard to tell but it is pretty clear that most russians appreciate that there is a big difference between russia as presented in these events by putin and the russia that they live in and you've actually preempted my next question. I'd noticed these texts that have been getting through. Quite a number of them. Uh, one, for instance, saying, this question won't be shown. I'd like to know when will our president pay attention to our own country? We've got no education, no health care. The abyss lies ahead. I mean, even if these are planted, there's quite a number of them, aren't they? There are. And again, look, it is clearly not beyond the capabilities of the presidential administration's massive media department to have been able to screen all these beforehand or indeed to have written them frankly if they wanted to do that so i think this is this is an attempt to try and you know inject a degree of i don't know unpredictability or reality in what is a, a very very artificial event Western governments will be poring over what Putin has been saying today. Are there any messages, you think, for the ears of leaders, particularly President Biden? I think there's two things, really. One is that he did address the question of whether or not there will be another wave of mobilisations, which is also something that there's a lot of concern about inside Russia. And he said, no, you know, we, we have ample volunteers coming to the ranks. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. Probably an attempt to try and reassure ordinary Russians but also an attempt to signal to the West, don't think we're going to run out of troops or resources anytime soon. Because the other message was very much hardline. All of our original intentions, all of our original expectations and demands for Ukraine, they still stand. Odessa, the city of Odessa, oh, that's a Russian city. We still need to denazify, as he put it, Ukraine. Absolutely no signs of any kind of give. No real hints that there's negotiations in the future. And you mentioned the election uh, a moment ago, it being a foregone conclusion. There is no effective opposition. There is no free media in Russia. But, you know, events can overtake uh, leaders. And is there anything particularly thinking the families of the fallen in Ukraine, they might see this as an opportunity to knock his re-election off course? Is there any hope for anything like that? I think there is. Look, elections at the best of times, however rigged, If they're meant to look at all legitimate, and remember, a lot of this is about the theatricality of these fake elections. They're meant to convince Russians that they are real. They have to create some kind of space for discussion, however choreographed. And that can often spin out of control. 
So yes, we've we've got the, the the families of the fallen or the families of those who are basically sort of press ganged into the war, who are already beginning to protest. We had the interesting spectacle not just of opposition from the sort of liberal wing, but also from ultra nationalists who didn't necessarily have a problem with the invasion of Ukraine, but do have a problem with just how badly it's being handled and the corruption and incompetence that is visible. So there is, shall we say, a considerable protest potential. Now, I'm not expecting any kind of mass risings against the regime or anything of the sort, but I think this is going to be a lot more uncomfortable for the Kremlin's political managers than previous elections. Mark Galotti, thank you very much. Now here's Tom Webb with the day's other news. Four ministers have been forced to resign from Japan's government over a fundraising scandal, including the chief cabinet secretary, a close ally of Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. According to reports, prosecutors are investigating members of the ruling party over allegations that around 500 million yen in fundraising proceeds went missing from party accounts. The United States House of Representatives has voted to approve a formal impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Lawmakers in the Republican Party accused the president of improperly benefiting from his son Hunter's foreign business deals, but have so far failed to produce evidence. And a senior figure in Taiwan's main opposition party is in China to meet with the Taiwanese business community just one month from elections in which the island's relationship with Beijing is a key issue. Andrew Xia is vice chairman of the KMT, which traditionally has a closer relationship with Beijing than its rival, the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Tom. To South America now, where Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro will meet his Guyanese counterpart Mohamed Irfan Ali later today to discuss growing tensions over the jurisdiction of the oil-rich Esquibo region, which is part of Guyana. Oscar Guardiola Rivera is a professor in international law and international affairs at Birkbeck College. Uh, Oscar, thank you for joining us. Firstly, for anyone who's not aware of this dispute, can you give us a bit of the background as to why it's contentious? Very briefly, this is a uh, late 19th century uh, conflict. Uh, Back in the uh, late 1800s, a uh, uh, tribunal, uh, you know, kind of League of Nations uh, 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 arrangement, not necessarily a tribunal, uh, gave uh, the uh, two-thirds of the contentious border to uh, Guyana as a former British colony and uh, because of the provenance, the colonial provenance of that arrangement, uh, Venezuela never accepted it. Uh, listeners will uh, recall, of course, that most Latin American nations gained their independence precisely in the early 19th century. So that sort of drawing of boundaries by colonial powers was unacceptable. Uh, so uh, you flash forward and uh, we have a Geneva agreement between the two nations that would give them the possibility of a mutual arrangement that went on for uh, almost a quarter of a century. You know, this is 19th century. 60s never it was the arrangement never never materialized and uh, so uh, in 2013 uh, a decision was made uh, by the then UN secretary general to pass uh, the matter to the international court of justice that's where it is 
And that's where it is going to be uh, arranged. Uh, President Maduro has uh, ruffled uh, uh, his feathers, uh, most likely because of internal political uh, reasons than uh, mm. uh, this matter, which, of course, uh, uh, you know, is important to all Venezuelans. So why is this meeting between the two leaders taking place now? It is very important because uh, uh, the other thing that our listeners would like to know is that there is a very entrenched tradition in Latin America for peaceful resolution, the peaceful resolution of these kinds of conflicts. Uh, This is the reason why, although uh, we have seen plenty of internal repression in uh, Latin American countries in uh, the late 20th and part of the 21st century, What we do not hear uh, about is uh, international conflicts. There are no international conflicts in in, uh, Latin America uh, uh, of the the kind that we see elsewhere. So uh, presidents like uh, Lula da Silva, for instance, or Gustavo Petro, who are to the left of the political spectrum, have made it very clear to Mr. Maduro that this must be, uh, 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 you know, fixed uh, via peaceful means. Mm. But President uh, Ali's parliament unanimously told him not to go. So what's in it for him to engage like this? It's a very good idea to uh, to go. You cannot just, uh, uh, you know, shun your international obligations. It is one of the obligations of uh, any executive in Latin America to lead international relations. This is not a matter for for Parliament, as it, as it would be here, uh, to, to, to a certain extent here in the United Kingdom, where still uh, uh, the Prime Minister also uh, leads international relations. That's the reason why they're, they're meeting. Uh, international relations in the Western Hemisphere matter greatly. And when you have uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, expression from uh, the big hitters, you know, Brazil, uh, Colombia and others, look, guys, Stop your performance, go and uh, uh, fix this thing uh, via peaceful means because we wouldn't want it otherwise. Well, you go ahead and do that. Mm. And this meeting is taking place in St. Vincent. Why are they playing a role in this? Well, uh, these are Caribbean nations after all. Venezuela, Guyana, uh, Colombia, Brazil and the uh, islands uh, of the Caribbean, they all share... Uh, these waters. And in fact, what matters most about this particular conflict is not just and perhaps not uh, uh, importantly uh, the land. I mean, these are two thirds of the land that uh, are administered by Guyana. It's very unlikely that uh, those will be returned. A compromise might might happen when, if and when the ICJ uh, decides the case. It is uh, the international waters uh, what matters most. And Guyana made him, uh, 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 you know, the controversial move of uh, uh, drawing a line uh, over the what would also be the economic area of Venezuela and international waters in in a, in a sense sealing uh, the one crucial exit from the coast of Venezuela to the Atlantic Ocean. That is the reason why uh, other uh, islands in the area are involved in this. What uh, matters most is to fix or come to an agreement uh, about uh, uh, international waters. And if they can't reach agreement today, what happens next? What what point is the case at at the ICJ? It's pretty advanced, although to say that in respect of the ICJ uh, is to uh, bet for, uh, you know, a resolution in the next, uh, you know, two years or 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 uh, perhaps even more. Things move slowly in the ICJ, but the case is there. 
members of the Venezuelan opposition have pointed out that uh, it would be crucial for uh, uh, the Venezuelan, the current Venezuelan government to prepare its uh, contra memoria, its counter arguments. And that is indeed the case. Uh, but this is an issue that, uh, funny, funnily enough, uh, in many respects unites both the opposition and the, and the Venezuelan government, because for both of them it is clear that Esequibo uh, is Venezuelan, at least to the extent uh, to which uh, an agreement could be reached about uh, explo rights of exploitation on the seabed and so on and so forth. Uh, there, there, there isn't, in fact, much of a difference there. The difference is that the opposition is blaming the Venezuelan government for, you know, engaging in pure performance because, uh, you know, other than, uh, yeah, you have this uh, result in the referendum, uh, you presented a map, uh, uh, you know, Netanyahu style with, without the, the, the border where it should be, at least in accordance to international law. Uh, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean much. And uh, uh, nominating a general to oversee the region from a town which is on the Venezuelan side of the border, well, all those things are, are performative. And as I pointed out before, there is a real conflict here that has to do with uh, the ex rights of exploitation, uh, which could be common rights of exploitation. That's another possibility, another way out. In fact, uh, uh, although the case is in the ICJ, uh, you know, there may still be some possibilities for mediation, but uh, the political internal uh, side of this, uh, of this uh, issue also matters. Oscar Guardiola Rivera, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. EU leaders are meeting today for a key summit on Ukraine's future. Accession to the bloc, 50 million euros in financial support and 20 billion euros in military aid are all issues on the agenda. But Hungarian President Viktor Orban is blocking all three with Jens Gier, the leader of the German Social Democrats in the European Parliament, claiming that thanks to Orban, Putin is also sitting at the summit table. Well, our Kyiv correspondent Olga Tokariuk is uh, with us now, joining us down the line. Uh, Olga, firstly, what's the feeling in Kyiv about this summit's chances of being successful? Hello, and thank you for having me. Well, there is a realistic kind of uh, perspective, I think, in Kyiv and the view that the summit might not be successful because exactly of the position of Hungary and its Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who in recent weeks and months only increased uh, his rhetoric opposing uh, the opening of accession negotiations uh, with Ukraine, the decision which might be or might not be taken at the summit uh, which we are discussing. So Orban started first of, uh, from criticizing the Ukrainian law on national minorities. That law has been now amended and another version of the law which is conforming to the EU criteria has been passed by the Ukrainian parliament. However, uh, it wasn't enough for Orban and after that he just started talking about how corrupt Ukraine is, that it is not ready to, uh, uh, to, to start accession negotiations with the EU, that Ukraine 
will not be able to win the war with Russia. So, you know, this uh, the rhetoric has been just like flaring up. And obviously, uh, that's the main obstacle which now lies um, and might hinder the decision uh, on Ukraine's uh, accession negotiations start. And we saw your president uh, confront Viktor Orban in Argentina earlier in the week. How much anger is there right now towards Hungary's government? And was that seen as a good move by Zelensky? Well, uh, as President Zelensky said, he doesn't really understand what Hungary is unhappy about because the rhetoric of uh, its prime minister does not really match the real situation. So, for example, Orban said that Ukraine only fulfilled three of out of seven criteria that the EU asked it to, which is not true. Ukraine actually fulfilled six out of seven. There is only the law on lobbyism, which hasn't been adopted. Um, uh, so uh, the arguments he he is presenting do not, uh, you know, have based in reality. And I think um, that's what Zelensky is uh, meaning when he is saying, like, I, I asked Orban, so what actually is the real reason? Why are you blocking Ukraine uh, from starting accession negotiations? And he said a few days ago that he's still waiting for an answer. And it's not just Ukraine that is frustrated with this position of Hungary, while other EU members have been unhappy about it too. So there was criticism from leaders of other EU member states uh, regarding Hungary's position. And we've seen yesterday that there has been also a willingness and some signals from the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to unblock, uh, you know, aid and to unblock EU funds for Hungary uh, in order to persuade Orban to uh, uh, you know, soften his position on the start of EU accession talks with Ukraine. Yes, I think, you know, uh, President Orban could be uh, uh, argued as being a bit hypocritical when it comes to criteria of being an EU member, given uh, his recent uh, performance. Uh, but he is a fan of President Putin, who's been speaking this morning, telling Russians at his annual press conference that peace with Ukraine will only take place when, quote, our objectives are achieved. Um, what's the reaction been to what Mr. Putin's been saying today? Well, it is clearly a sign that Russia is not ready to stop, uh, you know, the war and terror that is committing on Ukraine on a daily basis for almost two years already. So Putin and, and uh, you know, Russian government is clearly uh, hell-bent on uh, continuing its war and destruction of Ukraine. If he talks about achieving his objectives, he probably means uh, this mythological denazification of Ukraine. But in, in reality, that means the destruction of Ukraine as a sovereign and independent state and obviously derailing Ukraine from its track towards becoming an EU and NATO member. And Putin needs uh, helpers on that track. And clearly, uh, Hungary, led by Orban, is one of those assistants. And one of the other matters being discussed in Brussels is, of course, money, uh, aid money and military funding as well. President Zelensky was in America earlier this week uh, lobbying for more funding from Republican members uh, who don't seem that willing, who have tied it to the issue of the domestic issue of the southern border there. What is the feeling amongst ordinary Ukrainians about how the world is, is supporting them? Because, you know, 2022... Most Western nations, lots of countries and peoples around the world were in lockstep and wanting to support uh, Ukraine and their governments were on board with that. But it seems like in recent weeks, there has been a, a feeling that, you know, it's just not there at the same levels it was before. Yeah, well, obviously, there is a lot of frustration and a lot of worry about that because it's a crucial moment, actually, if this funds, this assistance 
by the US and also by the EU is not approved, while Ukraine basically will be stripped of means uh, to continue defending itself uh, against Russian aggression. So Ukraine has been trying to increase domestic production of weaponry, uh, but it's still not enough. Ukraine needs uh, help to sustain its economy and to sustain its military effort. And, you know, what is really remarkable is that actually there has been no significant change on the ground in Ukraine. It's not like that Ukraine started losing or there are major corruption scandals in Ukraine to uh, for other countries to suddenly change their position uh, uh, and, you know, help Ukraine less. Uh, the U.S., uh, for one, uh, promised to support Ukraine as long as it takes. And what we are hearing now, that rhetoric changing, uh, uh, that we will support you for as long as we can as President Biden said the other day. And I think this is really uh, um, causing a lot of worry inside Ukraine because Ukrainians have a feeling they are not just fighting for their own survival and security. They are fighting definitely for the security of Europe. And it seems that also the EU, you know, uh, considering this uh, domestic political debate in the U.S. and the fact that the U.S. might not approve the package of assistance to Ukraine this year. Uh, so th there should be a more kind of, uh, I, I think, push inside the European Union to mm. step in. And some countries are already showing that leadership. So, for example, Denmark yesterday promised uh, a unilaterally a big package of assistance to Ukraine, more than one billion euro in funding. That's that's a huge amount for such a small country. So I think there is awareness, at least in some EU capitals, that Europe has to do more, that the EU has to do more. But definitely the summit that is happening happening today and tomorrow will also um, be very illustrative uh, mm. and will define the course of war in Ukraine for the next year. Olga Tokariuk, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally today, it's time for another instalment of Fernando Augusto Pacheco's Global Countdown, in which our senior correspondent and music curator reviews the charts from a country of the world. But the countdown comes with a special wintry twist this week. Fernando sat down earlier with head of Monocle Radio, Tom Edwards. Last week, you surprised very much on the upside with a selection of music that wasn't all terrible, according to me. Um... What have you got in store for me this week? Well, we have the sequel for the Monaco Winter playlist. So it's going to be similar vibes from the first one. But I chose, I think, a nice selection. Very festive, very sexy, if I may say, Tom. I hope you continue enjoying it. And I have to say as well, if you if you want to know all the 100 tracks that I've chose, you have to buy the December-January issue. And also, we have a special Spotify playlist with all the songs. But if you want to find out more about some of the tracks... You have to listen to the Global Countdown. Uh, perfect. So I am intrigued by this because I want to know how you are going to deliver festive and sexy. To me, that sounds <laughs> challenging at best. But if there's a man that can do it, Fernando, I know it will be you. Let's see how you get on starting with number five. We have different five different vibes. The first vibe is for a crisp morning run. I know you're a bit of a runner. Too. I don't know if if you could dance to this, but she's an icon, so be, ca be careful what you say about her. Uh, from South Africa is the late Brenda Fassi. This is her song, Romantic World. We have a clip of it.
She's the queen of African pop. I mean, me. that is very 80s. Very 80s, even though the song is from 1981, funnily enough. Well, it, maybe it took a little time to, <laughs> to, to get there. That's, I like that. Do you know who was a big fan of her? Nelson Mandela. Uh, okay. So when she died in 2004, very unfortunate. I have to say she had quite a turbulent life. Uh, a lot of scandals. There was some kind of drug abuse. But it doesn't matter. She was an icon for South Africans. Uh, she was political as well at times. In fact, uh, the album she released before that one uh, from 91 was called The Black President, where she was, it was actually a tribute uh, to Nelson Mandela. So she's a very important figure on South African society. But to be honest, she also makes us dance. I really enjoyed the track. Uh, that was funky. I could see that, that being a, an elegant soundtrack on that crisp morning run you described. Exactly. Um, so, not bad, Fernando. I, I don't know what's happening in the Global Countdown. <laughs> well, we're going a little bit left field here, and you have to be, be calm, because the, the next mood is for when the fire is warring. And I discovered this accidentally, I have to say. Uh, one of my favorites, you know, Madonna, she sampled this song. But it's very unusual. In fact, they are from uh, the US. It's kind of an easy listening orchestra group from the late 60s and the early 70s. But it's so elegant and at the same time very soothing, which I think is what you need when you're by the fire, I guess. Maybe you've overindulged a little on your Christmas dinner, etc. Too many drinks, Fernando? Too many drinks. You need something elegant, soothing and a bit poetical. Poetic as well. Let's have a listen to the San Sebastian strings. Why I follow the tigers. I don't chase the tigers. I follow them through their forests, down their beaches, into their lairs. Why? People look after parades and dance at discotheques. Wow. It's unusual, right? It certainly is unusual. I didn't quite, I couldn't quite work out where that was going to go. And then it went there. It went there. And I don't know, I kind of like it. I love it. And you know what? I was reading, what's the meaning of tigers? And, and you know, vitality, strength, unpredictability, you know? So I wonder, I was trying to decipher the meaning of the song, but I couldn't. Maybe quite get I think it. You, you could tie your brain in knots with that one. Uh, interesting vibe. Um, it was pretty relaxed. Composed by Anita Kerr as well, who died last year in Switzerland, one of the biggest composers in American history. So there's a there's a little bit of, of history there as well. Fernando, that was as you you said it a little bit out of left field, which I kind of like. Um, what about the third track? What's the sort of little genre here that we're dealing with? We are going to Italy now, and, and the mood is for a wintry dinner party. And this song is sexy. Even, you know, the art cover for it is a woman wearing heels by the pool and having a martini in her hands. Uh, and the album uh, where, uh, you know, uh, this song is, is called Aperitivo. So, you know the vibe, right? It's sexy, it's in Italy, and it's called I Cocodrilli, or Crocodiles, with Sabato Italiano. Saturday in Italy. Let's have a listen. Notte senza stelle, solo luci giù in città. Magiche atmosfere, questo ritmo porterà. Se ti senti solo, basta chiedere alla luna. Spoglia di segreti, il lato oscuro brillerà. Nada puedo esperar 
Faye, I like that one. Me piace, un martini by the pool. I mean, it's perfect, right? I heard one bit was magic atmosphere. Does that mean magic atmosphere? Yes, exactly. I mean, how good's my Italian or whatever that was? And the songs about <laughs> what are you doing this this Itali- the, What are you doing this Italian Saturday? So it's very kind of evocative. That was almost uh, too funky for me. Oh my god! So what was it? Il crocodili? Ico crocodili? Ico crocodili? Which is crocodiles or the crocodiles? Fernando, that was a song. With some funky bites. Do you see what I've done there? And you want more funky bites? I, I don't think you can get funkier than and that. It's going to be, it's going to, things are going to become a bit awkward, okay, Tom? Because I brought some props. Uh, the next track is For a Late Night Boogie. We're going to listen to it and then I'll, I'll show you something, okay? Okay, this it's, sounds ominous, Fernando. It's from Brazil. It's super sexy. It's the great Marina Lima, 1985. The song is called Difficil or Difficult. Let's have a listen. Fernando, I don't know if it's because I'm a child of the disco generation without getting too much away. This is really agreeing with me. But what is the surprise? You've got a playful <laughs> glint in your eye, which makes me decidedly uncomfortable. I hope you're not allergic, but I'm going to spray <laughs> I'm going to spray some perfume in the air, okay? Let's do it. Just be careful. Um, actually, oh, yeah, don't spray it directly into my... I'm so sorry. Oh, Can you smell it? Oh, it's that's leather. that's beautiful, yeah. It's something that makes you dance. And I think the reason for it, Tom, this is my favourite perfumes by Celine, Nightclubbing. I think this Night perfume clubbing. matches the song perfectly. That does. Maybe you should have... Blasted this out before the tune began. I should have done that. So I'm sorry. It's not. This is very clever, Fernando. And don't worry, Celine is not paying me. It's just a fantastic (laughs) perfume. A kind of smell a vision, interactive, scented disco breakdown. And Marina Lima, she is iconic. I mean, I remember in the 80s, she's a bit of a feminist, kind of a rule breaker as well. Now she's a TV host and she's playing with some electronic music. So she had an amazing career in Brazil as well. And the lyrics for this song is sex is good, but it turns out that I have this addiction of difficult people in love. Wow. Very sexy. Faye, that's the most fragrant I track. I'm losing my voice. Ever... <laughs> yeah, you did. It was quite a blast. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I have, have sprayed no, too is, much. It's very atmospheric, but it's, it is also, <laughs> I, I think I maybe have a... Some kind of mild. Would you wear this scent, by the way? It's oh, it's very, it's very nice. It's very nice. Right? It's got a good studio vibe. I think as so. You as said, well. A little edgy, but kind of. It's not sweet. It's not. No, sweet. no, no. It's very. I. This, this doesn't really work on radio. Does <laughs> sorry. it? But sorry. it's it's really interesting. <laughs> um, this could be the challenge for 2024 uh, to keep the. We we need a fragranced global countdown each week. Listen, I've been talking to a few of our colleagues. I think they're up for it as well. Really? I yeah. love this. I've, I, Fernando, I don't know if... I think I've just inhaled too much perfume. <laughs> Where have we got? One more left? One more left. And this is one very straightforward. Tunes that made our year. To be honest, this next track inspired me to write a column for the Monaco Minute called The Summer of Love. Well, which is literally what it is, the summer of love. So there were a lot of cheeky songs this year, things that make you dance. And this guy, I have to say, Troy Sivan, I was never like a massive fan of him, the Australian guy, very popular. He started on YouTube. But after this song, I mean, it's sweaty. It's It rhymes simulation with stimulation. It's perfection. Hold your hats, people. 
let's have a listen. Now, Fernando, Troy Sivan is one of those names on and off during the years cropped up in the global countdown in a bunch of different markets. Is he one of these people actually go kind of anywhere and he has wormed his way into people's affections? Absolutely. Especially, it's been a very good year for him, I have to say. Uh, I think the music is great. Even the video directed by Gordon Van Steimer, who works with fashion brands, it looks good. It was filmed in a warehouse in Berlin. I mean, as I said, sexy, steamy. Everyone was wearing amazing clothes. I very much became a fan uh, of Troy Sivan as well. And some people, actually our colleague Grace said that this song sounds like a football chant. I have to... I don't know if Grace has been going to the same football games that me and you have, Fernando. Okay, maybe. I sense probably not. Okay, okay, but uh, fair enough, fair enough. But very good song. Um, and uh, we had, obviously, nightclubbing from Celine on Paris a moment ago. What's the... I don't know, what would be the fragrance of Troy Sivan? I, I, well, oh my God, Tom, actually, th- this was not scripted at all. He does have his own perfume brand. Oh, surely he not. He does. Well, he really does. Because I was, I was actually visiting Melbourne, his hometown, and I tried one of the perfumes, which is called, I will tell you in a minute. Because He's this, looking it up, people, I just to prove that this wasn't set up. The brand is called Soulangeur and is Lifestyle Space Sex. And so, and there's some touches of swimming pool, according to him. Don't, this was un, was not scripted. So what's that, like a sort of heavy chlorination? <laughs> heavy chlorination, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Fernando Augusto Pacheco, what a global countdown. Um, this is a bit concerning, isn't it? As we look into the future, back-to-back weeks where I'd actually listen to most of these tracks. What's cha- are you changing or am I changing? I think you're changing. <laughs> <laughs> Fernando, always a delight. Thank you very much for educating us again this week. Tom Edwards speaking to Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening.